Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. And uh, if you're just joining us for the first time ever on NeverSleepsNetwork.com or wherever you your podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, we're kind of making history today because we have our first Eisner award-winning artist in the studio. Uh, his name is Ramon Perez. You might know him because he's working on Nova currently for Marvel. He worked on The Amazing Spider-Man Learn to Crawl. And uh, his Eisner Award-winning work with Ian Herring, who was the colorist, is Jim Henson's Tale of Sand. Welcome, Ramon. Hey there. How are you? Good, good. It's... Uh, Nice to have you in. Thank you. Uh, Pleasure to be here, man. Yeah, yeah, totally. We we see each other at cons all the time, but I don't really get to have a, you know, real conversation with you most of the time. So, you know, you're somebody I greatly admire. So this is a this is a privilege for me. Oh, thank you very much, man. Definitely. So the way we start these usually is we get into you know, right at the beginning, like, where were you born? Uh, I was born in the suburbs of Toronto, actually. So I'm, I'm a Canadian through and through. My parents are uh, immigrants. Uh, my mother is from Poland. My father from Spain emigrated here in the, I think, 60s, around there somewhere, or late 50s. And uh, yeah, and then they had me and uh, I've been here. I mean, I like to travel, so but Toronto is my home base for as long as I can remember now. It's where I, I feel the most at home, basically. Why did your parents immigrate initially? Well, I mean, back then, I think, uh, you know, at that time, Poland was under communist rule. Um, so there wasn't a lot of opportunity there. My mother was a, a nurse and, uh, she was actually in here in, um, in Canada on holidays where she met my dad here. And my father was just traveling, uh, escaping pretty much the Franco dictatorship, uh, in Spain. So he was working in Holland. He was working in East Coast Canada and eventually made his way to, uh, the Toronto area. And that's where my parents met and kind of, uh, settled in for together for a while. Anyways, <laughs> nice, nice. So, what were you? What year were you born in? Back in seventy three. Nice, nice. Yeah. When did comics and superheroes first enter your life? Do you think? Uh, that probably wasn't uh, well. That's a two phase thing. Um, 
comics, I probably started reading them. I remember my first early ones being around grade one, maybe, or kindergarten. I was reading a lot of uh, European, uh, Spanish, and Polish comics. So I didn't, I wasn't really familiar with a lot of North American stuff at the time. And um, so I would read these uh, foreign comics my, my parents would bring back for me from when we went to Europe or, or something like that. And then so I got to newspaper comics in in your Sunday funnies kind of style. So like Garfield and, you know, Hagar the Horrible. Jeez, uh, I can't remember half of them anymore. Uh, Mother Goose and Grimm over the years kind of thing. That was my, my pretty much my foray into comics for the longest time. I had a few, three, I think I had three Marvel comics when I was younger. I don't even know where they came from, how I got them. But they were the only three comics I had till about grade seven. Uh, like I it was like an issue of Tarzan, an issue of I think it was Avengers, I think, and it was like part two of the story. So I never knew what happened in the beginning. And then the other one, I think, was JLA or something like that. Nice. So those are like the three comics I had for the longest time. But for the most part, a lot of the the stuff I I, I read was, um, like I said, European stuff. So what was the European stuff like? Well, it was a lot of, for the most part, it was a lot of Spanish comedy books. I remember there was two characters' names. The second guy was uh, Filemon. And the first guy was, I can picture them right in my head. It was like the the, the main guy could change shape kind of... I don't know who to compare him to, really. Like, he could become anything, kind of thing. And then the... Oh, yeah, Mortadello y Filimon were the the two characters. And the other guy was, like, kind of the straight, angry guy. He was, like, a cop, I think, by day. So, they would solve crimes. And But this guy could turn into, like, a jackhammer. He could turn into a car. He was, like, kind of, like, Plastic Man, basically. Same same idea. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah, so that was predominant one. And that one I, I had solo issues of. Then I also had variety issues, which had other stories in the back. And then, like, later stuff came, like, heavy metal and uh other just random stuff I would buy when going to Europe, I would just buy these like graphic novels and some of them, a lot of them were sci-fi based. Cause that's, I mean, I, I pretty much grew up more on movies than I did comic books. And uh so like Star Wars, uh, Battlestar Galactica, Blade Runner, I'm trying to think what else, Buck Rogers in the 21st century. Uh, and then like, you know, a lot of like TV shows, the uh Drama, action dramas of like the eighties kind of thing, like yeah. Simon and Simon, Dukes of Hazard, nice, Auto Man, yeah, A Team, yeah, like Skyhawk or something, or yeah, all those ones, Knight Rider, uh, and then I didn't get to comics till I was about grade seven. Like I said, a, a classmate introduced. We went to the variety store and like there was Spinner Rack, and he was buying his comics. And I was like, oh, cool, what are you buying? And I was like, I checked out a few, and I picked up, I believe, uh, I think I picked them up because they're mostly number ones. I picked up number one of West Coast Avengers, mm-hmm. uh, starring Hawkeye and the crew, and then I picked up number one of ElfQuest, uh, which was being published by Epic at the time. And uh, there was a third one. I can't remember what it was. Uh offhand but uh, and then I kind of opened the gateway to uh, to my actually reading comics on a regular basis so I would go to the spinner rack every when, uh, whatever day it was Tuesday Wednesday and they would just you know have them bound up in their like the that kind of weird uh, it's not elastics but the, the binding process when they ship the comics and then you always try to get a middle one because they were better condition than the outside ones right right and um, and yeah and then basically you just you could and you never guaranteed you get the second issue or third issue of your series so after like maybe collecting through the variety store for maybe about a year maybe or something like that I eventually hunted down the the comic store in my hometown 
and it was just the seediest looking place. Like I went in there, it was like dimly lit, walls were falling apart, like it smelled of like smoke and you know dankness. And I was just like, oh, this is like a scary place. I went in there, just got my comics, and I was just like, yeah, I got out of there, and then. Luckily, it, got, it became a uh, much better run store. Over years following, it became uh, less shady looking, and I collected there for, for years. What was it, it called? Uh, the store itself was called Unicorn Comics. Uh, okay. It no longer exists. Uh, it's now uh, changed names to Worlds Collide. Okay. And it's a fine comic store. They have like tons of stuff. Like the new store, I, whenever I visit my parents, I'll drop in from time to time. And, and uh, they have a wide variety of stuff, and, cl- and plus including gaming and collectibles, other collectibles. kind of thing. They're like the silver snail of... Of Oshawa, where my parents live. Nice, nice. Yeah. So, when being born in '73, did Star Wars have as much of an impact on you? Oh yeah, as it did on our first guest, Joe Kilmartin. I remember he talked about how Star Wars was like huge. Oh yeah, it was. Yeah. Uh, it was crazy, massive for me. Like, it's funny. I never saw in the. Th- I never saw Star Wars in the theater in North America. I first saw because I was a bit young. So '73, I would have been five yeah. i guess or so mm-hmm. when star wars came out or maybe four because it was it would have been may so i actually saw when it was re-released in i believe 1980 or 81 i think around there somewhere or maybe it was 79 i can't remember it was re-released just prior to empire coming out right but i saw it in poland and so like i saw it there and i just was like and I'd already be you know, aware of it because I had some of the toys through, you know, it was already in the, the pop culture right. ephemera, right? And then I remember I saw Empire Strikes Back at my school. Uh, they had it during a lunch break. They wow. played it for all the kids in the library. So that was like, so I actually, the only one I actually saw in theaters in North America was Return of the Jedi. And, uh, and then later on the Ewok movies and stuff like that. But yeah, it was definitely a huge pop culture change like and before i think before i'd seen i can't remember if it was before i saw buck rogers and uh they had a double bill of buck rogers and battlestar galactica in the drive-in my parents took me and that just blew me away too so like those those three were the triumvirate of sci-fi for me as as a kid does Star Wars is Star Wars different? Like, does it translate differently in Polish? Well, I, I, it, it was now? dubbed. In, it was subtitled in English. Oh, okay. I'm sorry, subtitled in Polish. Okay, uh, so the, it was in English, okay. which was fine. I mean, I knew Polish as well at the time. Yeah, but um, yeah, it, it was it was a okay. Nice. And uh, but yeah, so I mean, those those three movies in that genre really kind of just expanded. I think my imagination and like just opened me up to. It's all kinds of just like wonderful universes and then eventually, you know, taking comics on top of that just opened up the superheroes and other kinds of genres I would read there kind of thing, right? What was it about comics that compelled you initially? Well, I think it was just a, it was a cheap medium for me to be entertained on. You know what I mean? Like cable TV didn't come till much later. Even like renting movies uh, didn't come till much later. And I remember, like, Star Wars wasn't even available on VHS till I... You could rent it, like, for years later. And the first widescreen edition came out when I was in college. So that's, like, almost, like, 20 years after the fact. You could finally get a widescreen and see, oh, yeah, Chewbacca was there at the end. And, like, the other bounty hunters did exist, right? So it was just... It was, like, I had my... Like, I did my chores. I made my allowance. 
and you know whatever few dollars I had, I could then you know portion out and go, okay, this will buy me this many comics a month. You know what can I get? And it was like a good serialized, cheap entertainment that I could like. I didn't have to watch in the living room, like, you know, with my parents, I could like go hang out with my buddies and we'd hang out in like the basement, read our comics. And then maybe, you know, eventually that turned into also like maybe playing a round of Dungeons and Dragons or something like that or whatever kind of thing. Nice. You know what I mean? So yeah, I think that was for me the, the allure. It was just like a, an accessible media as a, co- a child that I had control over. Like I could go to the spinner rack and buy what I wanted. And when eventually I went to the comic book store, it became I was going to the comic store to pick up what I wanted to like ingest. So it's, so, it's like a measure of control. I think when so. You yeah. don't have a lot of control as a kid. Yeah. Like, like you know, once I started collecting, like I said, it was like grade six or seven. So I was like, I don't know how old that is. That's like what, 10 or 12 or, around there or something like that. Yeah. So. You know, you're making a little bit of money doing chores around the house, doing errands and stuff like that. So at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, you want, it's a way to exhibit, I think, you know, maybe some people spent it on other things. I was just like, comics, this is like, you know, it's awesome. And because my friends also read, we would swap out like, you know, oh, you're buying that, I'm buying this one, let's swap. So you get more entertainment that way. And then you sit down and just read these things in piles. Like literally, I'd buy a stack every week of like 20 comics or something you know i mean back then they were like i think by the time when i started they were about a quarter and when i you know by the time things got rolling it was like maybe a dollar 99 cents kind of thing once i was like full tilt into it did you bag and board or were you not that not that not back then uh maybe later on once i started going to the comic book store and i saw them putting these comics and bags and boards i was like oh is that what you're supposed to do Mm. and so i started bagging and boarding and your parents like because they were giving you comics in your earlier life they don't they didn't seem like the type of parents that would like limit you and your comics like they didn't care that it was comics uh, I think I mean once my parents separated uh, I think my mother really didn't care it was either you know uh, that or buying you know smut mags which I did also, but <laughs> and she didn't care about that either. So uh, God bless her. Um, but my dad, I think, didn't quite get it. So he was always thought I was wasting money on these things. Like he was like, "Why are you buying these things? They're weird. They're not going to lead to a future, right. you know." And uh, so I think he was a little, a little bit more trepidated. He was a bit more old school. He came from a, a very poor uh, family. He was, you know, he served some time in the military. So he. His, his, um, he maybe wanted a more manly or son. Not, not even that. Like, I helped around the house. Right. I was helping him do plumbing, electrical, roofing, right, right. all that all kind that of stuff. stuff. It was it's just, just I think he just didn't understand it. It was, yeah. it was, for him, that was a thing a child would read, not a young adult. Like right. a young adult should be doing other things. Right, right. Okay. Kind of thing. And I mean, it's just like, you know, it, even though my dad had, you know, some basic, very basic artistic skills, which he used to like render out, like he's a mechanic. So he would render out like plans for taking apart a car or something like that. But it was just like, it, it wasn't a sustainable course for someone to take. You know what I mean? Like it was like art, like an artist didn't make a living. That was like the poor guy in the village who like <laughs> bust on the corner playing an instrument or he would paint some painting and he would find it charming. My dad would appreciate it. But I think for his own son to embark on something like that, it was like, what, are you going to be poor for the rest of your life? Like what, what's going on? Kind right, of thing, right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So how did you 
start to think maybe you could do this for a living, especially when maybe there was a little resistance in your family. Well, my, mo- my mother always fostered my talents uh, to put me in like night schools. It was actually funny. I'd be going to like night schools for art classes and like I'd be nine and all the other classmates would be between like the ages of 18 to 40. Wow. So I'd just be like, this is weird. But she like, I guess people didn't do that back then. I have no idea or something. Were so like, like, be... Did you do like life drawing as a kid? Yeah, life drawing, <laughs> some life drawing or like it would be like basic lessons you know, on composition and stuff like that. And the people, it was great. The teachers actually, uh, uh, actually like fostered what, you know, the, what I was bringing to the table kind of thing. Some of them argued with me and I'd be like, no, I'm doing it this way. And I was still stubborn as a kid, I guess. Right. The idea of doing, even though I like, I, and I started doing like, um, I remember in grade, must've been around grade eight or not even younger, grade six or seven as well. Yeah. Cause I had a friend of mine and we did a, um, a big fat anthology, but of like Sunday funny style comics. We are our characters and we did like little kind of funny humorous strips. And I had like 10 different characters. He had 10 different characters and each character had like a section of it. The thing, the thing's probably buried in my dad's basement somewhere, but um, it was a fun experiment. And then, but that was just like all these, all the time, I, every time I actually did a comic, it was like a hobbyist action. So like, you know, when I, in my high school years, I would create my own X teams. You know, like here's, here's my version of Angel, my own version of Wolverine or Batman or whatever it might be. Um, and it actually wasn't until I was in college cause I actually went for uh, illustration and, um, prior to that, I was looking to things like interior design, architecture, fashion design. Uh, so you were always like an artistic person. Like yeah, you were an artistic I was looking person. to the arts as a venue for a career, but I never actually considered, um, uh, illustration or comics as a career. So it wasn't until a, uh, a friend of the family mentioned, uh, Sheridan college. And, uh, up until that point, I'd been applying for fine art. I had like U of T, Queens, and a few other places. Uh, he mentioned the animation program, and I was like, "Oh, that's fine." So I looked them up, checked out the their information. But I wasn't really keen on doing animation. But I noticed they had an illustration program, so I called them up. I set up a kind of an interview, which they didn't really normally do, but they were nice enough to accommodate me. So the one of the teachers set up a presentation, all this stuff. And I went there and I was like, this is like, it was a great found uh, school for like a, a foundation course. Like I learned everything. Like I was in awe when I walked through the hallways. So I was like, this is the stuff I want to learn. Like when I went to U of T or Queens, I was like, it was all fancy, fancy pants, you know, like I'm painting feelings. And I was like, I can paint feelings anytime. I don't need to be taught how to paint feelings. Yeah. I want to, I want to learn how to draw cars, like structure, chair, structure yeah. the human form. And so it blew me away. So I ended up going to, um, to Sheridan for illustration and it was a fascinating, I'm not sure if every year is like this normally, but um, the year I was there, it was it was this kind of wide dynamic. I was actually one of the few people in the course uh, right out of high school. Oh, cool. What, what year was this? Uh, 90 something, 92, I think maybe, 91. I mean, not to say there weren't any people straight from high school. There were, but there was also other people from other arts programs like that had taken five years of fine art at OCAD or at Queens and they wanted to learn that stuff. They never got to learn that foundation stuff. So they're coming back to Sheridan. And then you had this other facet, like people uh, who were working professionals in the art community who were now coming for like a refresher course. And, uh, so I actually met a few different, like a bunch of great artists and people at this course. And, um, but two of the guys in particular, maybe three, uh, but in my first year, there was, uh, this fellow Tom who went to the Kubert school. 
Oh yeah, yeah. The, that's the comic yeah, school yeah, in, in New Jersey. Jersey. Yeah, and basically, I'd never heard of. It. I didn't even know it existed. Founded by Joe Cooper. Yeah, like and uh, yeah, and basically, he couldn't afford to go back. It was quite expensive, so he came to Sheridan, and he'd be working as a plumber through his life, but he always wanted to do comics. So he was coming back to school and he kind of like reignited that love of comics. I mean, not that I had abandoned it, but he kind of like, we had something that common ground to talk about. Would I know him or? Uh, Tom, no, Tom Basner, his last name is Basner. He works in uh, animation out okay. on the East Coast. Another guy, um, brushing off the dusty cobwebs from my Larry, uh, who worked for RPG gaming, for science fiction gaming, so doing illustrations for Dungeons and Dragons and that sort of thing. So he was doing a lot of black and white artwork since the 80s, right. but wanted to come back and learn color theory, learn that kind of stuff. So he was like another, opened up my eyes to like this other facet of what I could be doing. And you were playing Dungeons and Dragons, right? Yeah, during high school I did. By the time I was in college, I'd kind of stopped for the most part, but it was definitely something that... You know, was also like inspiring, like drawing monsters and weird things, yeah. and you know, you know that was it like of, the imagination and the creation? Yeah, of worlds totally. You get to you build yeah. you build characters, you build worlds, you know, you build stories, right? Mm-hmm. I used to like play, but I also GM and run different games and campaigns, so it was a great way to test my story storytelling abilities, right? Right. So anyway, so he was like uh, another big influence, and then in the second year, uh, Tom Fowler, who actually works in comics, uh, he came into the the course, and we had like we just were able to commiserate about comics in general. Nice. So it was like uh, storytellers. So this kind of opened my eyes. The first two guys definitely opened my eyes as to I could do this for a living, which I didn't actually know kind of really up until that point. It was more like, oh, this is a hobby, and I'll work as an illustrator. But then it was like, so then I went with, to my first con in New York with uh, with Tom and. A couple other guys, and uh, it was the Big Apple Comic Con, which was huge. It was the size of the Reed Pop New York. Well, I mean, not the size of it now, but it was a, a, the large con the at the largest time. New York con yeah, now. and I, I met con, I met Karen Berger, who who ran Vertigo. By that point, I can't remember if Vertigo had started or just started. By that point, they probably just started because uh, Swamp Thing was like late eighties, so like. Early '90s was just as yeah, it came, as it came and up. like Shade the Changing Man was something I was collecting at the time, and Hellboy eventually came along, and a few other things. And uh, but yeah, I got to meet some stuff people at DC and slash kind of vertigoy people, and I went to like some of my first interviews with um, other companies. I think Dark Horse maybe even I had an interview with them, and so I kind of got the the ground like the ball rolling a little bit, just meeting people, seeing what the industry was like, working on samples. And that sort right. of thing. So it wasn't like, like did they require back then? Uh, <laughs> they were far more picky. Yeah. I remember going to. Well, this is actually a later time. This would have been much later. I would. I would have been already working in um, uh, gaming by this point, probably for five or six years. I went to a San Diego Con, and I remember showing. I'd done a graphic novel, and it was a science fiction based graphic novel. And I remember showing it to Marvel, and they looked at it and they were like well, we don't know what this is. How do we know you can draw Spider-Man? And I was like, well, Spider-Man's just a naked dude in a costume. This, these are people <laughs> with clothes and like monsters and vehicles and things. Like, I'm like, and I was just kind of like, kind of almost arguing with the, the guy you know, reviewing me. Cause I was like, anybody can draw superheroes. This is like not that hard. Hey. You know, you just cut a couple of lines on the outfit and you put on a cape and then you're done. Right. Yeah, yeah. Putting a gun in someone's hand. You weren't like all precious of like, Oh, it's Marvel. Yeah. So like, respect. so back then it was like Marvel wanted Marvel characters. DC wanted DC characters. So you had to do this, like all this extra work. And I'll be honest with you, I never did any samples with any of the company characters except for a short, which I took to that first con uh, the Big Apple Con, and I did like a five or six page short story 
that I wrote and made up myself, starring Shade the Changing Man. Panels, like everything like that? Or? Yeah, 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 yeah. I made up the whole yeah, story. Yeah. It was like a six or eight page story. I can't yeah. remember offhand. And it was just like, because I liked the character. Mm-hmm. But that was like the one and only thing I ever did starring a company character for auditioning. And I only did it because I was like, I like the character and I want to work on this character. Mm-hmm. I've never done a Spider-Man test page or a Hulk or Batman or anything. So I was just like, I just refused. I was just like, this is my art. Whether you want to hire me or not, I'm not going to be drawing your character. I'll prove you. I'll prove I can draw your characters when you pay me to draw your character. Basically, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good plan. Man. You know, because <laughs> you want to be taken advantage. So bro. maybe, maybe that's why it took me a little bit longer to get into comics than normal people. But I was just like, ah, who needs to do samples? So when you're there in like '92 at the like Big Apple Con, like. What was the experience? Like, how did you walk away? What did you walk away feeling like? Oh, it's interesting. I mean, like I said, I met uh, Karen Berger. She really liked my portfolio, the Shade the Changing piece I did. She gave me her card, number, and uh, and, and I met Shelly, uh, uh, was it Ro- Roberg? Shelly Roberg? Yeah. There as well, and a few other people and editors. And I basically just kept the discourse off and on with some of these uh, individuals over the years. A lot of them really went nowhere. Right. Funny enough, I mean, like, I would send in, like, you know, oh, here's some of my gaming work. Here's some of my sci-fi pages. Here's some of this. But And then I would just ask if you have a script or something or whatever. And, I mean, yeah, I just kind of, uh, it really, all those contacts kind of really went nowhere for my, uh, you know, everybody starts differently in comics. And those knowing editors didn't really help me in any way. Early on, I mean, later on where I met, I met, I met, um, Probably the one editor that probably got spearheaded a lot of my work was Ben Abernathy at, um, at he would have been at that time Wildstorm. Nice. Uh, not, in the, not that show, but later on when I went back to San Diego, I think in 2004 or five, I can't remember. Actually, no, it would have been later. It would have been 2000 because I went with the, I was already part of the studio. So that would have been 2007 or eight. And uh, because uh, yeah, we just hung out with him, a bunch of us, and we got to know each other. And like, he liked, as, as a person, he liked right. me. And I, I just gave him a portfolio that I'd printed up of like a variety of my work. Yeah, those patented raid studio get togethers at yeah. like restaurants and stuff. Yeah, so like, you know, I, I just, and he was like, we never actually, I never actually even professionally showed him my portfolio. I just said, here, if you want, here's, take a look at it when you have time later on. Right. And then like, he gave me a call a few months later and I did like some odd jobs for, for Wildstorm. But it was actually really connecting with uh, writers at early cons that actually begat me a lot of my earlier work. Cool. So what were you doing in the meantime while these early contacts, you know, weren't really I was I much? was working professionally in um, as a freelance artist. So I was doing a lot of work in early on. It would have been science fiction gaming. So I did a lot of work for Palladium Books, who does Rifts and Palladium Fantasy and Worlds of the Supernatural and TMNT back then and uh, After the Bomb. And then I went, I, I used that work that I did there to also springboard me into doing other work for, at the time it would have been West End Games. They did a game called Innominate, which was like an angelic demon game. They also did Star Wars, so I did Star Wars work. Did you get into that through your classmate that did that kind of thing? Or? Well, it was like because that one guy, like yeah, I said, yeah, he worked in yeah, gaming. Yeah. He suggested I'd be perfect for this. So basically about a year or two after... I graduated, I just went to my local comic shop and leafed through every gaming book and basically took down the address and whatever name I felt was either the art director or the president of the company. And literally, I just sent out like a seven or eight portfolios to these companies going, I'd like to work on these these properties. Why not? Mm-hmm. And Palladium Books was actually the first one to answer. And that just began more, more work. And I was also doing illustration work for finance magazines, cooking magazines, hotel magazines, 
newspapers. Then I eventually made my way to children's books over the years and the uh, gaming stuff also i started because i couldn't get any work in comics i started i just started doing web comics because i was like i'll just do these myself and put them out there right you know what i mean and so i was just like i was just i was i never stopped working as an artist did I it feel like a means to an end in the sense that you always wanted to do comics or were you totally fine just doing uh this illustration and, i was told i mean i was totally fine doing these illustrations i mean i love comics and i love the aspect of storytelling it brings right. Uh, but I could do that in one piece or I could do it in 20 pages, right? right. I mean, I there's a charm to both mm-hmm. and uh, both were challenging, you know what I mean? And I mean, I worked in the gaming industry for about, I think, almost eight to 10 years. And I mean, by the end of it, I was getting a little bit kind of just, I needed change. Like I've been drawing this content for so long. I want to do something, which that's why I said it led me to, I went to children's books for a while mm-hmm. and I also did web comics. I wanted to scratch my that itch, like comics, that storytelling itch, and do the kind of things I wanted to do. So that was another thing. I, you know, I was also writing other comics and graphic novels for myself at the time that, that are still on, you know, shelves in, in the back room, so to speak. But it was, yeah, I, I was, I never stopped creating. I never stopped doing. And, you know, from the, 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 from that first gaming job a year after I graduated, I've been working as an artist ever since. Right. I never took on a part time job. I never took on, any kind of other job. A couple of times, maybe I had to do some extra legwork here and there to make earn some extra cash, maybe because a client, you know, did not pay. So I was like, shit, I need to like, you know, make a hundred or a few hundred dollars to make rent. So I'd call up a buddy. Hey, do you need a hand at, uh, at the, the shop here or something like that? I can work a few hours. They're like, yeah, yeah, sure. So I mean, there's a couple odd jobs here and there that mm-hmm. maybe lasted a week or two or a month. Right. But nothing like I was working consistent. Art was my main job. Nice. And that's what I was doing kind of thing. So what brought you to Raid Studio? Well, that came along a lot later. That was um, I, I, after moving to Toronto and slowly ingratiating myself into the uh, Toronto comics community, which was through publisher. What I, I really actually attribute my connection to, there's a kind of a twofold thing. And I worked with publisher um, Speakeasy that was based in Toronto. I did a book for them called Spell Game. Adam Fortier, the guy who used to run that company, he uh, used to attend a luncheon every week, Wednesday called the Superman Club, which was Darwin Cook, Mike Cho, um, Jason Bone or Jay Bone, and um, a random assortment of other professionals. It would it would fluctuate every week. There'd be more or less guys, but it'll be all Toronto working professionals. And it was basically like a networking. No, they just they, got, they went to the comic store. They picked okay. up their comics at Dragon Lady, where Joe Kilmartin used to work. Yeah. And then they would go grab lunch. And okay. so, like, he invited me along on one of these things and introduced me to Darwin and all these guys. And I was familiar with Darwin. Uh, the other guys, I wasn't, but then I, I quickly became. And But that publisher folded and kind of, like, actually burned a lot of bridges with a lot of talent in Toronto. But I just still kept going for lunch with these guys, you know, became friends with them. And that's how, actually, a lot of my uh, children's book work came along was through Mike Cho, who was also doing a lot of uh, children's books at the time. And we just continued talking and going on. And then... Just maybe a year or two or consecutively around that same time, I'd also uh, for a while been dating a girl who worked at the Silver Snail who was taking me to like introducing me to more of like the the comic scene, which is something I never really did. I was pretty. I worked what in. What was the comic scene? Back well, it was just like the people in Toronto who did comics. Yeah. Whether you were partying at the Silver Snail party, right. or uh, uh, doing a, an event, launching your indie book, or whatever it was, it just became like I was not even a part of that scene. I was. I lived and worked out of my loft. I knew people who worked in uh, in uh, what do you call it in um, in science fiction and gaming, and a lot of my friends that I made in Toronto 
didn't work in comics. They were people I'd met at bars or cafes. So they were either chefs or dentists or doctors or actors. So there's no, I really met no other artists. I was like the one artist in my group for the longest time. Right. So after uh, dating this girl uh, for a while at Silverstone, I met these people and like I went to a launch party for uh, a Rumble Royale, which was the Raid anthology. I have it. Yeah, with think- Cameron Stewart, Chip Sadarsky, yeah. Ben Shannon. Uh, uh, they did like Apocalypse. Kagan like- McLeod. Yeah. yeah. And there was, uh, I can't remember his other name, the other guy from, I think he was from... Um, I want to say South America or maybe. South America, yeah. I can't remember his name. He did, he was some he was an awesome artist. Yeah. Anyway, oh no no, he wasn't or was he part of the book? I can't remember anyways, but it was like Kagan, Ben, Cameron and Chip okay. were like the the main four guys. I think yeah. maybe the only four guys in that book. Right. And um uh so I went there and I I kind of cursorily met a few of these guys and one of the guys actually uh who I met at the cafe who was kind of this was friends with Chip as well so he introduced me to Chip too on before that event and all these guys were like the founders of Ray Yeah those right? were the founders of Ray I yeah. think I believe it was Chip Ben and Kagan who went to school together at Sheridan who started Ray and yeah. then Chip invited Cameron, Cameron who we met through a dating site or something weird story like that you can ask <laughs> them about that sometime and um <laughs> And then uh, basically, they, that's the, the studio form. And I think that was in 2004 or so. And then a couple of years in, I mean, they had a lease for four years on the building or the, the unit. And about two years in, Kagan had gotten married and uh, had a kid on the way and was buying a house in the East End. So he, couldn't, he kind of made the decision, I guess, that he couldn't really afford to keep being part of the studio. So he kind of opted out. And they made a list of people who... Uh, they want to join or approach to join the studio. I was probably third or fourth down the list. Maybe the other guy said no. And I kind of ruminated at the time because I was like, I, said, I was working out of the house. I did. I, my only overhead was my rent. Uh, and I had a huge apartment. So it was like, I had plenty of room. And but how did you score such a huge apartment? Oh, I mean, it was it was an industrial loft. It wasn't legal to uh, live there right away. Good. And the rent was cheap. So it was great for an artist. And uh, But the opportunity seemed... Awesome because I'd be introduced. Like I mean, I knew these guys kind of socially a little bit, and I'd be already hanging out with these lunches like once a week with these other crew of guys. So it was just another avenue to like kind of extend my friendships and and, and be in an environment where I'm actually now working and sharing a space with other creatives. Right, and especially for a guy who's not really part of the scene. If you yeah, be more, yeah, more exactly, involved. right. You know what I mean? And so I kind of ruminated for a while because I was like, it would increase my overhead by another $400 a month. But I kind of broke down the math and said, well, if I get an illustration job, that's like one or two days work or three days work. I can cover that extra bit of rent. So I was like, okay, I'm going to take the chance. And like joining the studio, increase my productivity, having the challenge of all these other talented guys around me, obviously in, in, in by default, improve my skill set. Uh, and improve my contact base because now I'm part of this team and we're going out together. We're going out to events together. I'm meeting other people. And um, and if you're having issues, you got people to support you. Yeah, exactly. If you're having troubles or you need help on a thing or whatever or composition, you could like, you know, shoot a shoot over to a guy and go, hey, what do you think of this or that? What should I do kind of thing? So it definitely, uh, you know, improved the the, the work environment and, um, and also the social skills too because I mean, working at home for so long, I was kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm working my pajamas and, and talking to myself half the time, right? right? So it was a great way to go out and actually 
integrate myself in the, in the kind of the uh, the the art social kind of tapestry of Toronto. Nice. Kind of thing, you know what I mean? And then over the years, Chip left, Ben left, and other new guys came in. Cameron was there for a while, I believe, up until 2000, I want to say seven or eight. Yeah, didn't he move to like Berlin or somewhere? Well, he moved to Montreal. I think it was 2008. I think he moved okay. to uh, Montreal. And then he was there for a while, for a few years. Then he moved to Berlin for a few years. Then he moved to Glasgow. And now he's actually back in Toronto again. Yeah. So uh, so then I took over after, after that point and took over running the studio. And now we're like, back then we were four. And then we became seven. And then when, about 2013, we we moved down to a bigger space. And now we're like 15 down there. Nice, so, yeah, nice. it's, it's one of the greatest parts of my artistic career, just being part of that studio. What is it like to run it? Like, you're always thought of as like the guy, like the longest. Yeah, I'm the granddad guy, right? of, the, of the studio. Exactly. Yeah. I always say organizing artists is like herding cats. It's like, it's it's enjoyable and frustrating sometimes. I mean, I love it. And it, it runs smoother and smoother as the years go on. Like, they, there were a few rough spots early on when, you know, we were kind of like just trying to move into a bigger space. Our overhead was a little bit higher. But uh, as long as my, my goal is just to provide a roof over their heads, make sure rent's paid on time. We have running water, heat, and all that stuff. So, and uh, and uh, sometimes we I initiate endeavors like branding and stuff like that. So like putting the raid logo out there, kind of getting our identity as a studio out there. Like I actually found it funny. Like when I joined the studio, there was no raid logo. Though Chip designed a funny coat of arms. And there was no. Yeah, that was on the book, right? That was on uh, Rumble Royale. Yeah, it might have been on the back of the book or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But there was no website either, (laughs) and I was like, "No one, you." But what you have no. So like, it wasn't until like when I took over. I think like in. I think maybe till 2010 or 11 till we actually finally got a website for the studio. Wow. You know what I mean? Just to, just as a portal to like right. where people could come somewhere. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was kind of funny how like and just like improving that branding and identity was actually helped the studio as well. Like we've had documentaries done now, articles and stuff like that about the collective space we have. Yeah, that's yeah. That's, that's totally awesome. Yeah. In terms of like the artists that come in and go out, do they audition? Do they approach you or do you approach them? How does it how does it really work? Uh, a little bit of a both. I mean, for the f- most part, early on, we would contact people when we were looking for, uh, you know, if we had extra seats in the in the in the room, we would contact people. So, yeah, and like so, certain people like Ken Lashley, we contacted at one point. He was with us for about a year, and then other people were put in touch with us. Like so, like I think Paul Ravosh at one point was looking for. Uh, he was moving back to Toronto and wanted to, a place to work. And so he was put in contact with me and, you know, being a fan of his work, I was like, hells yeah, come on in. Yeah. yeah. He you did know? like storyboards for like Batman the Animated Oh yeah. Batman, and, and he was like the guy who designed uh, Mr. X back in the day. Right, right, yeah. So he's like, he, he's like his tab. Like, I mean, his work was inspiring me when I was younger and in college and stuff like that. Right. So yeah. So people would like, so it was a bit of everything. And then sometimes like we'd have a, we started getting interns and sometimes interns would graduate and then maybe a year or two later would come and, Hey, I'm looking for a space. Do you mind? Do you you have anything available? And for a while we actually ran a public space where people would come in and just like for a few dollars, rent an area in the studio to kind of just be part of the scene and like have input from other professionals while they're starting out. So that was also, that also kind of generated new members that people would like maybe show up for a while, use it for five or six months and then, maybe disappear for eight months and then a year later come back and go, yeah, do you mind if I join full-time now? Is there a criteria? Like, do you have to be at a certain level? Well, we try to vet. I mean, like, I find the studio tends to weed out its own. We've had many people come and go over the years. And for me, there's no bad blood. I've never had any bad experiences with anybody. And even if there were some maybe tenuous experiences, I'm not one to hold grudges. I'm like, I could care a lot. Life's too short, right? So... 
it's never really been a bad scenario. Like right. we just like some people are just not for them. Maybe like the crowd or the dynamic or the hours or or maybe they're just their goals in life change or they move somewhere else or their overheads too much and they want they need to just work out of the house for a while. Everybody has their own reason and whatever it is. I'm just like sure, no problem. It's, you know, it's your choice, and then we right. just go find someone new. Right. But I think I find the studio. The, there's a certain personality and vibe in the studio and uh, I find people who just fit in it stay longer and other ones who don't or just you know eventually leave or you know whatever it might be kind of thing and what is what is the personality and vibe well I mean that's hard to put your finger on it's just like the, there's a uh, there's a aesthetic to the personalities in the studio oh, okay. you know and we're all friendly we're all friends we all go out and have drinks and hang out so mm-hmm. someone who's maybe not wants, wanting to do that might feel left out after a while or might not be part of that it's like it's like you're almost part, even though we don't work together you're kind of almost like a family part of a team right and if you can't be part of that family you eventually you're gonna just separate yourself and leave on your own kind of thing right it's exactly just, it's just gonna it's just a certain, awkward yeah it's like yeah I don't know how to, I can't really put a finger on right. it it's just it's just that happened. energy of the studio kind of thing so I met you, I think, in 2003, and you were working on Butternut Squash at the time. I met you and Rob yep. sort, of, sort of at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I watched you play dodgeball. I've never played dodgeball, so that wasn't me. I don't know. <laughs> know. It's weird. I don't have balls and, thrown and, at and me. I, and, I remember, and I remember there was like a house on Grace Street that people used to hang That was Andy, Andy Belanger's place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So, so I remember that. Yeah, a few like Halloween parties there and stuff like that. Right, right. Things, yeah. so, so how did... So this was some of your sort of independent stuff that you were doing. Yes. And how did that form? How did your partnership with Rob form? What period of time was that? Was that? Uh, well, I mean, uh, to go back to how I met Rob is a whole other story, but I mean, we became friends in Toronto uh, through a mutual friend, just to, to make it shorter. And we just were hanging out and like, he didn't know anybody. I didn't know anybody. And we met this other guy, Vince, who was an ex-boyfriend of a girlfriend I had in another city who I just bumped into one day in Toronto and we became friends. Right. So it's like we were this, this triumvirate of guys that um, weird shit would happen to us all the time when we were going out. And we were just like, man, we got to transcribe this somehow. So at one point I was approached by a newspaper outfit that was trying to create... Uh, independent Toronto, uh, or not even Toronto, Canadian um, comic insert. Right. So this comic would be like the old Sunday funnies, like a four-page leaflet or whatever it would be. And it would be inserted across all the independent uh, newspapers in North, in Canada. So Van- all the like Vancouver, Calgary, you know, Montreal, East Coast, Halifax, whatever. And so they were looking for content and we were pitching. So I'll... I was like, I used to make comic books of my friends back in high school where I'd make fun of them. Right. And it was just a good, it just seemed like the perfect avenue. So, like, I kind of resurrected that idea with my new group of friends in Toronto. Because, like I said, weird things would just happen to us. So, I resurrected the idea. I approached Rob because Rob had, um, his background was in uh, film. He went to school for film and editing and stuff like that. And we, our senses of humor matched up very well. Okay. So we just kind of like started talking. I brought him in on it and we started chatting about the idea and we came up with the, you know, obviously use, use ourselves as characters. We'll be the, the scapegoats and the, the funny men and then take that and like run with it and create scenarios. So we we created a bunch of comic strips, pitched them to the, the newspaper thing and they loved it. And, but then they folded because uh. they, their funding fell through or whatever it was. So now I had all these ideas and all these strips and but nowhere to put them so i was like hey maybe maybe i'll put them on the internet maybe people are doing that and uh, lo and behold people were so i was like i just bought some hosting Mm -hmm. on some like i can't remember who the provider was 
And I was like, okay, I'll I'll buy hosting here. We'll put it up once a week or something, whatever it is. And that's how it began, you know? Yeah. And you were sort of like the ladies' man. I remember he liked... Uh I wasn't the ladies' man. I don't know. He was obsessed with bacon, I remember. He was... There was like a coffee situation, too. Well, the main main focus was, I mean, the main... Kind of like when friends had that coffee shop they all hung out in right this was our coffee shop we hung out insomnia in the annex okay and um that was an actual place and a lot of the staff i drew in there were actual staff i think it's still an actual place oh it is yeah it's it's still there yeah yeah yeah, totally and uh so because i became friends i met a lot of my friends there because i began to know the servers and the servers would introduce me to their other favorite customers so that's how i made a lot of my early friends in toronto Mm -hmm. And the reason I started going to Insomnia was because I had no computer when I first moved here. Couldn't afford one. Uh, it was either going to Kinko's, which had, you could pay, you know, rent a computer or whatever for so long and use it there. Or at the time, Insomnia was an internet cafe or bar, sorry, internet bar. So I could actually pay to use, I think it was actually a little bit cheaper. Plus I could order food and booze. So it was like a perfect combination. Totally. Or coffee. Yeah. So I started doing that, and now there's no even existence of the the uh, computer side of uh, Insomnia Left. It's no. a complete bar kind yeah. of uh, restaurant, nightclub there now. But yeah. So that's why I started going there, and then, you know, and then Rob and I just, more and more fodder came. We just updated. I mean, it was always, unfortunately, with Barton and Squash, our, my update schedule or the update schedule was always faltering because my career was always changing. Mm-hmm. And back then, in 2004, I mean, the internet was going, but there wasn't really a sustainable way to make a living mm-hmm. off of the internet. There was no, like, people weren't trained yet by Steve Jobs to pay 99 cents for anything. Like, back then, people didn't want to pay. They didn't want to put their credit card number online. It was rare. Yeah. Like, it, you yeah. mean, yeah. it wasn't like... now PayPal people do, isn't what it was. Yeah, and... back then, it was a, there was a lot more avenues to, to actually get someone's money. Like, you had to go through three or four tiers of stuff. And right. people just weren't comfortable. Now, people just tap away and, and punch in their numbers without hesitation because they've been trained now for a decade right. since then. But back then it was still, so we, I couldn't really make money off of that. So I had to make money doing my art career. So that, that creates an abnormal schedule as it is. So people right. would be like, oh, why aren't you updating? I'm like, I'm sorry, I got to go to the show or I have a deadline on this thing that's actually paying my rent. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I love butter and a squash, but unfortunately it suffered just due to my career. Right. And I mean, I often uh, talk with Rob about resurrecting the idea because now we have the ability to to get micro payments or bit payments or or PayPal is a much more efficient scenario, right? And then you have Kickstarter, Patreon, uh, right. all those other and things. And you did do one issue collecting. That was uh, done through um, Speakeasy. Right. The publisher I did because um, they were looking for more content. Right. So unfortunately, we, we did one issue and then they folded. But amazingly enough, back then, I mean, because no one knew who we were in comics. So it's actually funny. The comic actually got some great reviews. Right. But we sold, I think it was close to 4,000 copies back then of an indie comic, which was actually pretty good numbers because that's like low-end yeah, image amazing. now. That's and amazing. image is popular yeah, now. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? So it's like uh, we, we had a kind of this little pat on the back moment. So we were like, okay, maybe we actually got to get this back going. Maybe. Yeah, and, and I saw like reviews <laughs> yeah. online and yeah. stuff. So pe- like from the States, like people found people totally found you. And stuff. Oh, yeah. We had all yeah. great reviews and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I remember even Darwin, like he, he got a copy of the comic, obviously, because he worked for, he did covers for the spell game comic I worked on. And he was like, hey, he's like, you guys are funny. And like doing comic, doing funny in comics is really hard. And you guys pulled it off. We're like, thanks, Mr. Cook. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and then were you doing Kuk- 
Kukuburi at the same time, or was that after? No, Butter, I know you did. Butternut started in 2003 or 4. I think it was 2003. Kukuburi started in 2007. Right. Yeah. It was something that the whole Raid Studio was doing. You each had your own yeah. comic kind of thing, right? The initiative actually started with uh, Eric Kim, another local Toronto artist. He wanted to do a collective of web comics online. And so it was myself, Eric, and a few other people. And then I joined the studio. Right. And we're the people started talking about the studio and they're and Andy Belanger was interested. And then Cameron Stewart was like, What are you guys doing? And I'm we're like, Oh, we're doing some webcomics. And he kinda of became interested. And then Carl Kirschel at the time was in the studio and uh, we were having a meeting about it. And I was like, Hey Carl, why don't you come along? He's like, No, nah, I don't wanna you know, it's okay, I don't want to impose and he came along and then he was kinda of like right. uh, interested. Didn't Paul Revoche do one too, or was no. that later? That would have been uh later, much oh, later okay. on. So I was like suddenly this this thing that grew from just like Eric Kim and myself and a couple other people. I think it was Arthur De La Cruz. And um, it just grew because people became interested. It's like, oh, this is an avenue. I can do something on my own. Right. And no one could tell me what to do. Because a lot of these guys were working at Marvel or DC or Vertigo or whatever. And webcomics were starting to blow I mean, up. I mean, it probably was, around the time of like Penny Arcade and those Yeah, sort, this those was sorts Penny Arcade already been established by yeah. that point, And they were like doing quite well. Yeah. Uh, PVP was doing quite well. So there was a precedence for webcomics mm-hmm. doing well. These guys had some strong names. And we got a lot of great reviews and a lot of pats on the back from uh, uh, the, guy, the guy who does PVP and stuff like that. I like, did a couple of guest comics for him. And uh, they were like, oh, these guys are doing it right. Unfortunately, we're doing it right, but not well enough because none of us actually made any money off of it. And we, the problem with running, and this has happened to me a few times, I've been part of a few collectives of artists. The problem with running collectives is that they slowly began to disband after a while because either usually one of the people who's kind of organizing the team is also an artist. Right. And that artist can't produce their own work and also organize the team because it's too much, too much right. of a workload, right? Penny Arcade is a prime example of success because you had these two guys who were creating this web comic and they really had no plan. And you have that myth, myth-like story now of this guy, the third-party guy that came in and was like, what's your plan? He worked in business or something, yeah. if I recall. And they were like, they're like, five-year plan, what's that? And he's like, oh my God. So he actually, ended up steering them into what they became like he's like he was like i'm gonna take six months off uh of my day job or quit my job whatever it is or take a sabbatical and then for six months i'm gonna work for you guys if i'm not earning my own salary and you got and you two as uh, money as well by the end of that six months or a year whatever it was i will leave and you guys go back to doing whatever you were and he'll go back to his job and he'd call it a day yeah. but he saw potential he wasn't the artist he was a businessman right. and he those guys are giants now right, like they right. have exactly. what, cons that make cons, or break video games yeah, yeah. merchandise yeah everything. you know what i mean so like you really need that individual that's willing to back the team but it's not part of like he's not there having to create the content right like i shouldn't have any like I shouldn't run a group and then also have to create content because right. that becomes too much work. I remember like when T- Transmission X or TX, as it was later called, first launched, my comic launched last because I was busy building all the websites. I was busy doing all the branding. I was busy buying the hosting right. and doing coding and all that stuff. And people were like, why are you uh, joining uh, TX Comics? What, yeah. what brought you to the team? And I'm like, oh, motherfuckers, I was there from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> I just couldn't do my comic because all these other guys didn't know how to code a website. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. it just became, it was just like one of those things. So it's like, you know. And so. I mean, I know that Kukubri has been a passion project of yours for a very, very long yeah, time. Yeah, and that's another one that suffered like because i mean 
I sometimes find it good that when you can get separated from your projects, like that one ran from 2007 to 2000. I think the last update was 2012. 2012. Sp- spring, yep. of, spring of 2012. And unfortunately, at that point, my life became so hectic for various reasons, I couldn't do it. And, yeah. and, uh, but I still have people coming up to me at cons and requesting that I, you know, that's like five years ago, five, six, seven. Yeah. yeah it's pretty amazing. It's sort of like, it reminds me of like Doctor Strange meets Little Nemo in Slumberland, sort of like yeah, crazy surrealist. Feel yeah, I just wanted I wanted an avenue to create something where it was like no holds barred. I could do whatever I wanted in this world, and every rule could be broken or bent or whatever. And um, yeah, and Little Nemo was definitely an inspiration for it. And I wanted it to be very accessible to a younger generation. I didn't want to do something that was like catering to like the traditional comic books crowd. I wanted right. to be like. You know, the success we had with Butternut, I wanted to like take that and bring it to Kookaburi. And actually, Kookaburi ended up surpassing Butternut in numbers. And I like, I'm actually planning on, I'm actually being in the works for the past year almost now, eight months to a year, actually working on finishing the story. So writing, doing drawing. Yeah, because it never got finished. No, it never right? got finished. And it's like, it's partially drawn. Like, so it's, I have, unfortunately, for the past few years, I've been only working on it like every 30th day of the month, right. you know, and I do a little bit, of chip away. And then when I'm done, I'm just going to put the whole thing up and right. call it a day and watch. I don't want to be like updating and, and then, then not update. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I don't want to start updating and then have to stop again because of my schedule. So for yeah. now, I'm just going to like, you know, I work on the background and when it's all done, I'll put it up and call it a day and people will have the entire story. Yeah, because you don't want the audience to be like, oh, no, he's updating. And then, and and then, then, then he's not again. Right? He's not. <laughs> the last thing I need is more angry emails. Right, right, right. You know exactly. I mean? You're listening to Speech Bubble. We'll be right back. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to harryt.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. So let's go to 2012 mm-hmm. and like that time of your career. Mm-hmm. How did it start blowing up and going crazy and why? Uh, well, you mentioned the, the, the book in the opening, The Tale of Sand. Yeah. And I did that in 2011. I was approached by Arkea and they approached a handful of different artists, uh, names who escape me right now. But it was like a dozen big name people or up and coming for that matter. And uh, they asked us to kind of audition to for this comic or for this graphic novel adaptation they, they wanted to do. And my name got dropped into the hat because a guy at the, um, I can't remember the author's name offhand, I'm, I'm kind of blanking, but he did uh, Dapper Men for, okay. for Arkea. And I'd work with him inadvertently on a Dazzler comic uh, for uh, Marvel. Uh, because uh, the main artist uh, couldn't wrap up the whole issue, so I came into the uh, the middle, like seven pages or something, or fourteen pages of the issue. So these little connections were happening with you and Marvel. Oh yeah, like, uh, there would always be cons. Your yeah. career, like these little yeah. tiny. Yeah. So like I did a job, like like I said earlier on, like I, yeah. I met writers. So like my first, like my first DC job or practically only DC job was B. Clay Moore getting me to do the Wildcat story in Justice uh, Justice uh, League uh, International, was it called or whatever? Yeah. Or JSA, Justice Society of America, yeah. Wildcat. And then my first Marvel comic 
Uh, I mean, I did a couple of like oddball ones, like through doing like through Udon, which is a Toronto studio, kind of like salvaging a Marvel deadline. Yeah, they did like Transformers and things like yeah, that. Yeah, so I did a couple of oddball comics through them. Uh, but my first like under my own name banner was like uh, Scotty Young, who's obviously famous. Yeah. Uh, but he used to read Butternut. Okay. And wow. yeah, I met him at San Diego when I was when I was tabling with Speakeasy and I had my butternut comic. He came by and bought a t-shirt, he bought a comic, or maybe the comic wasn't out by then, but we had a t-shirt, so he bought a t-shirt or something. Like you know, and I was like, Oh shit, like I knew his stuff and I was like flattered and then like he read Kookaburi and like we kept up like a little bit of a discourse here and there. And so like when opportunity came, he was just for foraying into writing right. his own stuff. So he wanted to, he was like, he dropped my name. He's like, I want Ramon Perez. And the editor is like, who? So <laughs> like, you know, I, I, but you know, they got me to do it. And right. then the other one was uh, Catherine Eminen, Stuart Eminen's wife, yeah. who was also doing a lot of writing. They're from Toronto. Or Toronto Ottawa, area, yeah. Ottawa. And basically, uh, you know, she, I met her a few, I knew them through the industry as well. I met them a few times and, and uh, I said, Hey, if you ever want to work together, I'd love to work with you. I love your writing. And, you know, she had an opportunity to write uh, uh, Captain America um, issue with a sudden like world war two mm-hmm. basically she you know got me to you know told the editor i want ramon perez and so it's like all these like little snippets here and right. there so yeah and then I, I worked as an anchor for a bit on a few different comics and they're, but they're all like things that led nowhere yeah and um but anyway so back to that dazzler thing so that guy had the graphic novel with archaea so he dropped me he's like you guys should check this guy out he's really good he put my name in the hat. They like what I saw. They like what they saw. So and then so they approached me and basically um, I auditioned. I did like a, a sample page of how I would interpret the script and I kind of submitted. And basically the the caveat was basically that either the the company, the publisher Arkea, and the Jim Henson company, who obviously owned the the rights to their father's work, had to both agree on the artist. And I was like the only guy they agreed on for the book so what did what did you bring to it i mean i i've read it this is a script that jim henson did with like jerry jewel his longtime collaborator it was like a feature-length movie it's mostly non-verbal it's all pretty visual (laughs) and my favorite part of it is how you incorporate the script into the work and how you you speak like a real visual language like Mm -hmm. it's like you have very innovative ways of like getting things across right and that was happening at kookaburi too like you'd do like the skull and crossbones when people were angry at each other instead of you know shouting it would be the symbol to convey anger right and here you actually took like physical pages of the script and like incorporated them into the background Mm -hmm. of the of the comic yeah so is that what you did for your audition pieces how did you actually actually came later about in discussions with uh steven christie who was my editor on the project because he wanted to somehow involve the script because he felt it should be a part of it and he he made a few suggestions and i was like okay we can work this in and based on my interpretation of the story it actually worked out well that we actually ended up infusing the script into the actual imagery the lead character is is basically caught in a repetitive trap of his own making right right he kind of looks like you a little bit that's people i don't know why i don't know why people say that because like he's got like a square jaw and a proper haircut and like a nice pixie nose and i'm like i ain't got any of that stuff so i'm like people say that but maybe it's the eyes maybe i gave him my eyes or something i have no idea Yeah. yeah so basically he's on this journey that he keeps kind of he's kind of like a like a cyclical 
trap in this journey. That's fighting what, against himself. Fighting against himself. Like he's, he's causing his own downfall. Right. And um, so basically having the writing on the wall, which was the script, right. basically says he can't even see the writing on the wall. Yeah. He's like walking by it and he's, he's seeing it, but he's not seeing it because he's like, he's still caught in his, his cycle. Nice. But yeah, so I mean, I, I just did a page how, like there was one sequence I did like one page and I said, this is how I would interpret it visually. And they just both agreed on me. And so basically for the most part, they gave me free reign to do whatever I wanted That's on this awesome. thing. I, you know, I researched a lot of, um, in conjunction with Karen Falk, who's the Jim Henson archivist in New York. She sent me a bunch of, um, Jim Henson's early experimental work before the Muppets. And so like, I kind of immersed myself in his world. So you watch timepiece, I guess his short film, that Time won the Piece. Academy Award, yep. that this is supposed to be based, that this is kind of riffing off on. of it. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, but and I watched a million other things too. And, but he had a very peculiar thing also with color and music and stuff like that. So I was trying to see, uh, I can't really involve music in the comic because it's a silent medium, but I can use color as music. So that's how my, my, I created that, the palette I used for the book and uh, so, like, I worked with Ian Herring as the main colorist, and then Calvin Andershofsky and Jordi Belair colored some sequences as well. And uh, and then I colored a lot of the book, but I kind of color directed the whole book as well. Okay. Because I, I wanted to make sure this vision of what I wanted got across. And there's across. That, that striking photo of, like, the character as drawn by you with, like, Jim Henson behind the camera type thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really, really cool. Really Thanks, man. Yeah, that was, a, that was a fun little... That was, like, because they wanted to use some end pieces and... Steven was like, let's use this. I'm like, here, I'll make it better. And I, I did a little mock-up and I said, how about this? And he's like, he was like, oh my God, blew my mind. Right, right. It was, it was a very fun project. And I mean, not to say there was any pitfalls, like there, the schedule was crazy. Sometimes there was a little bit of backlash as to what I was doing because, because I was doing it so fast and so all over the place that the company didn't even know what I was doing. You know, in a weird way, like they're like, but once the near the end, they started to see things come together because they wanted a full color book and I didn't want yeah, to do a full so color book. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. So like I'd be constantly pushing a little bit. And, you know, I mean, thank God for for Steven, because uh, he did a great job of playing the the guy in the, the middleman between myself, Henson and Arkea going like, you know, I don't know how many bullets he took for me. Maybe one day he'll show me the scars. But it's just like. He uh, he really he really stood by me and actually you know yeah. allowed me to create something. It's good to have great editors, but it's also good to, like that it, at the time you were sort of a veteran artist, so you knew yeah, to push I, back. You weren't like you know in reverence of the Henson company. Yeah, too it was much. funny because well, no, I mean I I love Henson growing up. It was like uh, one of the one of the big influences as a kid was the Muppet Show and right. like Sesame Street. But it was, I think, for the fact, when I tend to believe in something, when I tend to have a vision for something, I have a very hard time backing away from that vision. So if you give me a stupid, like, arbitrary release date and I don't believe in it and I want a week more, I'll take that week more. And you might hate me for it, but at the end of the day, you're going to get a better product for it. Right. Right. I mean, before when I did those early Marvel jobs, and this is actually the other side effect of of the, the, the Tale of Sand, which I think helped me a lot in my career was when I was doing my early Marvel work, the, with the ones I mentioned earlier, like the, the Deadpool. And I had fun with those, but I think I was trying to conform myself a little bit too much to what I thought the company expected of me. Right. Or what you'd seen as a fan. Yeah. Or something like that. Because it was like, I'm coming in and like, I'm getting this job with a big company. And it's funny. I never really had that before. When I worked in gaming, I never had that problem. Maybe because I built up such a repertoire with one company first, I was allowed to do whatever I wanted. Like it came to the point when I was working for Palladium Books early on. Like by the, by my second or third year at that company, I worked for them for five to seven years. Right. 
by the I think second or third company, the editor would just go, just draw stuff and we'll work around your art. I didn't send in roughs. I didn't send in, they just they told me the dimensions and I would make something awesome. And that's something I lost when I went to comics because I suddenly had to have every step checked or like roughs, this, that, the other thing, which was something I wasn't used to. So I kind of froze up a little bit, I think. And had to kind of almost like re-earning my chops with these people, really yeah. earning trust. But then Tale of Sand came along, and for some crazy reason, Stephen was like, "I trust this guy. Maybe we bonded in a certain way, or whatever it was." But he and we I mean, we've been friends ever since. But like, he trusted me enough to go, you know, I see where you're going with this, or I kind of see where you're going with this. I'm going to let you have free reign. And, I mean, not to say he didn't edit. Like we had to cut down pages. We had to work on things. When I was, you know getting crunching on the deadline, he would hustle me, you know what I mean? But at the end of the day, that by giving me that freedom to do what I want, I can then now take that way I like to tell stories and I'll bring it to my future work after right. Tale of Sam, whether it would be it was X-Men, Spider-Man, or whatever it might be after you that. Had, kind of, you had control. Yeah, I learned that control. And then like by because after that point with the winning the Eisners and... Yeah, I, I want to talk about that because once you won the Eisner... The reaction was this new dude, like, yeah. like where, where, where'd he come from? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Why don't we hire him? I've been working for you guys, but no one pays attention. And right? it, it always seems weird that, like, what ends up winning awards is like the innovative stuff mm. that at first nobody wants you to do because it's too scary. Yeah. And, like, what are you doing? What is this? Blah, blah, blah. But then in every medium, like film, yeah. Oscars, everything that wins awards is the stuff that pushes the boundary that at first, you know, the studio or the yeah. editor is like resistant. Yeah. Resistant. Yeah. No, I mean, right? that book was great. I think it broke a lot of barriers and grounds and like, I'm not trying to be like patting myself on the back, but it allowed me to do something fun with the medium, which I hadn't seen in a while, which is the way I always like to tell stories. Like I think comics for the most part, and it's going to sound horrible, but I think they become stale. Like there's not a lot of interesting things happening in mainstream comics. There's cool stuff happening outside of them, mm-hmm. but you know, sometimes those are smaller print runs. They're not getting the, the limelight they deserve or whatever it might be. Like, you know, Jimmy Corgan's, you know, uh, the Jimmy Corgan series is a great example of like these really crazy, awesome ways to tell a story. But you don't, you never see that filtering into mainstream. No, it's like one graphic novel that people. Yeah, it's like, you know, yeah, yeah. They, that's, uh, that's kind of put over there. Or, yeah. You know what I mean? Or, or whatever, like, you know, a big influence on me later on was, uh, Mazzucchelli, who's, you know, started in, you know, traditional storytelling, but then he, like, worked up to, like, a masterpiece, like, a serious polyp. Right. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like this taking this medium and showing people what we can do with it. And really, I was trying to convey sound, movement, motion, all these things in, in Tale of Sand in a, in a very si- silent in the sense that, A, the character didn't talk, but also I couldn't do sound effects either. Right. Right. Like, like actual and sound And they effect. say comics are cinematic, and they are, but not... You know, every way that a movie translates. No, not necessarily. No, it's very different. You can do things in comics that you can't do in movies. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? Because film is... like the the viewer is passive. They're the the they're looking at the movie and they don't really control how they digest the movie. They can pause it Mm -hmm. and maybe rewind a spot. For the most part, you go into a movie theater though, and you're watching that movie, and the director dictates how you ingest that movie. Right. You know what I mean? But with a comic book or a graphic novel. It's like an immersive medium. The the reader is going in and they can turn the page. They can they can spend an hour on one page if they want to, or they can spend two seconds on it. But also, 
you're dictating to them like the, the the sensations between the gutters or between the page turns. You're giving them the the tools and they digest it how they want kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that's what I tried to do with Tale of Sand. I mean, there are certain pages on in that book where you, in my opinion, you look at the everything on that page is happening all at once, not sequentially. It's like there are staggered moments on a page that all happened within the same second. And then there are other pages where things happen over 20 minutes, you know what I mean? But you're controlling and you're giving these different fragments of time to the reader to ingest and or story, how to, how to take them in kind yeah, of thing. Right? You, you really used like the panels as a control mechanism. In oh that, yeah. In that story. yeah. Like it was a noticeable, like I changed the pace of reading according to yeah the, the form the of the panel yeah 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 like and the, I don't always do that with comics sometimes it's a little too formulaic or yeah I mean and that has its place like I've right. reverted to like when I worked on for example Hawkeye for the modern day stuff I worked for, with a very traditional panel border I never broke panel borders I, I kept the gutters normal like because that's the kind of story I wanted to tell and then I had the dreams or the memory sequences which were a little bit more amorphous and organic. So, I mean, like, I really, truly believe of changing one's storytelling style and visual style as an artist or a creative or a storyteller with every story, because not every story should be told in the same way, visually, right? So, what's the experience of winning an Eisner like? You're the first Eisner Award winner we've had. I, I want to know what that is, like, the ceremony, all that stuff. What well, is it, that was, like? it was interesting, because, I mean, like, it, essentially, like, they're, they're the Oscars of comics, Right. right. And I remember it was funny, like it was such a surreal weekend because I remember I remember my editor had called me up, uh, Stephen had called me up. I think it was, I was at Emerald City Comic Con. I just arrived and he called me up. He's like, he's like, dude, like, don't tell anybody, but we just got nominated for, I think it was six or five, five, I think it was five Eisners. And I was like, holy shit. And I mean, this comes like as a guy who like struggled to get into comics for 10 years and then suddenly within the first two years of, you know, like doing some odd jobs, but then like the graphic novel and then suddenly it's like this thing actually someone gave me the ability to do what I want to do my way. And then suddenly we were winning awards, which was which was like a complete flattery and, and, a, and a pat on the back and how you do your work. Right. Right. Because it's such a personal yeah, you know ownership. I mean? Yeah, you know, it was funny. Product. Like I remember being at the awards, and I was like, uh, I was actually funny the day before the award. I was doing a signing at uh, the Arcade table, and the one of the presenters, the actor from Battlestar Galactica, uh, who was uh, oh man, Starbucks uh, boyfriend. Came, <laughs> came by my he was like walking by and I'm like why are all these people clamoring around this dude I, I watched the show but I, I'm terrible with faces right. like or not I'm good with faces but I'm terrible correlating actors faces to names and to like to like oh they're that guy from that TV show yeah. like I just, just see them as people I don't see them as like famous people right. this is like bit me in the ass a few times and uh, so he's walking by I'm like oh, I wonder who that dude is Yet I'd watch the show and then he came over and I kind of clicked after I saw him like head on in my face. He's like, yeah, I'm presenting the award for best, like, you know, I think it was best artist. And he's like, I had to read all the, all the, I wanted to read all the books. So they sent me and they sent me yours. I think he's like, I think, I think you're going to win. And I was like, I was like, oh man, thanks. That's cool, man. I was like really flattered that you think so. He's like, no, your shit's awesome. I'm like, oh, thank you. That's all. That's really cool. And he kind of just walked off with his like fans chasing him. And then next day we got ready and I went to the awards and, um, I remember we had the first two awards we lost. It was uh, Ian Herring and myself were nominated for coloring. DJ was nominated for for lettering. Yeah. And uh, and so then it was best artist. And I was like, 
in my mind, I'm like, no fucking way, I'm gonna, I'm gonna win this thing. Yeah, I'm, already, I'm the new kid on the block. Yeah. Everybody else, like the people I was up against, were solid names. They're like it's, uh, half of them were my friends, and other guys, even if I didn't know them, I respected their work. So right. I was like, holy, okay, this is this is solid. And it came to the point where I was like, literally, when they announced my name, I was clapping because I thought I was clapping for somebody else. It didn't like click that I had won. I was like, oh shit! I had to jump up and run up. It was like because it just did not believe that I had won, and uh, it was it was it was surreal. Like I remember that moment being up there. I probably babbled like an idiot. Did you have a speech or anything? No, I had nothing prepared because I didn't think I was going to win. <laughs> so I literally babbled for like five minutes or like whatever it was. I you know I hugged like you know a big thank you from the two presenters, which was the about the actually the two actors. From Battlestar Galactica was the dude and uh, the girl who played the Cylon, the blonde girl. Uh, and, Jerry uh, Ryan? Or? No, that's isn't she from Enterprise? Oh, yeah, never mind. She's from East Coast or whatever. Yeah. yeah. No, no, it was uh, anyway. So if there's video footage, I probably like just babbling like an right. idiot there. But and it was funny because I'm walking off to even to add to to add embarrassment. Like I'm walking off the stage after probably babbling like an idiot for you know a few minutes. The globe off the Eisner falls off as I'm walking. Oh so, my god! So like it bounces. I'm like, oh shit! I'm like roll. I'm rolling, chasing this rolling globe down the oh aisle. Oh my god! I've had it for two minutes. It's already broken. Yeah, I was just like it like just came <laughs> off. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and yeah, it was great. So I grab it, I put it in. They start. They, they take a photo of you with the award, and and there was actually this reviewer that was super awesome. Uh, I can't remember who, what his name was. I didn't know. I think his name was Harvey something or. He's a, a, a runs a comic review blog or something like that, and and he was an older gentleman. And like as I came off the stage, he he came up to me. He was like, he's like, you give me faith again in, in the Eisners that this could win because uh, like it's being. I guess it was a bit of more like you know a lot of contemporary yeah. like uninteresting stuff was winning. I have no idea. I don't really tend to follow what wins and what doesn'ts for the most part. Yeah. So it was really flattering. And then literally as I was walking back to the table. We won the next award, so I literally just went. I didn't even. I put down the. the I think I just really walked back up the aisle and went. And Stephen, the editor, met me up there, and we both accepted because I think the second award was for best graphic novel or best design. I can't remember, yeah. kind of thing, right? So cool. Yeah, so it was a, it was an amazing experience, truly flattering. And then like walking around the night with three Eisners is no, right. no, no, no bad thing. And it's thing. such a great story because like you'd been toiling for ten years, but you were like the new hot shit. So once you were the new hot shit, did your phone start ringing? Yeah, it's funny. Yeah, like Marvel started calling me up uh, uh, and asked me if I wanted to do. Um, actually, I did an odd job. It was funny because I didn't do a big job after Tale of Sand. I ended up doing uh, John Carter and the Gods of Mars, which was like part of the children's line of comic books. And uh, the editor on that was uh, uh, Sana, who is kind of like the, the, the powerhouse behind Miss Marvel these days. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. But she was kind of like a new editor at, at the at the time, and she was friends with Steven, and he was, she was looking for an artist that could tackle this book under a really stupid deadline. And uh, he's like, I know a guy who's fast and good. <laughs> so he introduced me to her, and I was, it was actually a really great project to work on, because once again, because it was like a back, like a C-list a book in the Marvel catalog, they were just doing it because they had the license, they were doing it because the movie was coming out. Right. So once again, I kind of got to do whatever I wanted to, on that book, I called up Jordy, who are, are we kind of floundered on. Like she was supposed to be do more of Tale of Sand, but things didn't line up. So this was an opportunity. I gave her a call, and this was an opportunity for us to work together again, more more on a, a longer piece. And uh, it was great because like I, I was jamming that thing out so fast, and I was working Marvel style. So basically, I knew the novels from my own personal reading. Uh, Sam Humphreys, who was writing the novels, 
would actually just send me a paragraph of notes on how he he was slightly changing the delivery of the story. Okay. And then I would just draw the whole book, and then he would dialogue it after I drew it. Nice. So, Marvel so like, style. classic Marvel classic style. Classic Marvel style. Yeah, so literally, I, in my head, I was just literally just drawing a silent tale of sand again. Yeah, he was like the Stan Lee to your yeah. Jack Kirby kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, uh, it's something... It's funny, because I, I always try to make my stories work without words. It's something I get from, um, of all people, I think two places... One was a G.I. Joe annual where I think it was Snake Eyes and, and Storm Shadow went in on like a attack or something and the whole issue was silent. Yes. It was our a, last guest, Shane Huron, uh-huh. talked about that as like a comic that he bought when he was a kid. Yeah. Larry Hama did. Yeah. And yeah. how it he still remembers it. Oh, it's influence. awesome. Yeah. And that that was like uh, when I was a kid, I was like, This is awesome. Because there's no words. And you don't and then the other person was uh George Lucas for Star Wars, because he often said the dialogue in his movies, and you maybe see it in the newer ones, but he often said about the Star Wars trilogy was that the, the dialogue is secondary. It's the music and the visuals that make that story. You can remove the dialogue and he, you should be able to understand that story based right. on the music and the visuals. Exactly. And that's something I always took with like silent movies. And so I was like, so I always try to do that with comics, try to make them work, and which I think has helped me with things like Tale of Sand, like and 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 later on uh, John Carter of Mars when I was working Marvel style and right, and then also actually something I refined on Butternut Squash because we often did a lot of visual humor, so like translating that cover was yeah pretty, was pretty visual <laughs> yeah you know what I mean so it's like just telling stories without words is something I think almost the medium's lost a bit too like right you know right and and you st- you started to see that in in your later work like I. I noticed things like Learn to Crawl mm-hmm. and Nova, like you, you got that control. Hawkeye. Yeah, it's coming back with everyone. It comes back a little bit more. You yeah. know what I mean? So, yeah. I mean, now you're working on, you're working on Nova, but before that you worked on like The Amazing Spider-Man, which is yeah. like their flagship book. Yeah. Before, actually people, before Nova was Hawkeye and then before Hawkeye, Hawkeye was, was Spider-Man, Spider-Man Learning to Crawl. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So when you got the, Amazing Spider-Man mm-hmm. tale. I think it's in the, like the raid documentary, and you're like working on it or something. Yeah, yeah, that been around that time. Yeah, um, this is like the book that like people want to draw one day. So when you yeah. finally get there, what is it? What what is it like? What how does it feel? It's, this is gonna sound horrible as a guy in comics, but I never put these characters on a pedestal. Right. Like I mean, it was awesome to draw Spider-Man, but for me, it's the building of the story. So how I was pitched the story was by Steve Wacker, who was the editor, was supposed to be the editor on the book. He pitched me on it, but then he ended up leaving for Marvel Animation. So I had a different editorial team once I came on the book, which uh, changed the dynamic a little bit. But when he pitched me on it, he was like, we're revisiting Spider-Man's origin. We're filling in the gaps between, like, the, the spaces between the gutters. We're telling the side story to his origin and finding out what because the character essentially changed quite a bit between I think issues like two or three I can't remember what like this, early on in the series like the character shifts quite a bit right, right. and it becomes that like kind of rollicky kind of friendly neighborhood sarcasm yeah. one liner Spider-Man but in the earlier issues he really didn't do that no because it was it was Ditko influence yeah. Ditko was more serious yeah. and yeah. objectivist yeah. and it was more angsty yeah and, and Marvel you know Stan yeah. was writing it too but you know yeah. So we were like, how we how we get? So the dance slot was like, you know, pitch this idea, how he got there, and uh, we kind of. But the approach was like, here I get to I'm, I get to revisit this thing. And for, so for me, the interest in doing that was sure. Yeah, I get to draw Spider Man, but I get to draw 
a part of Spider-Man's past that was important in defining the character. Right, the legendary. Yeah, part. so the story for me is really important. If I if I find out like if if I'm reading a comic book, if I'm drawing a comic book and then halfway through the comic series I'm working on the story, the script goes stupid, I lose interest. Like I just so I have to be invested in the story. And it was also the challenge of saying or like approaching it going because we're revisiting the Ditko era, I want to actually bring that aesthetic to the character. I want to have those Ditko lines. Yeah, there's a lot I want, of lines. Yeah, I want to have those Ditko panel layouts. Yeah. Uh, I want to do, go very traditional with the like six-panel grid. I want to go flat color for the most part, not too fancy color, which will end up being a stickling point later. And then also just like how I, you know, like I use a quill instead of a brush to get that particular kind of line. And... Um, I would riff off existing panels. So that, and like just how I drew Spider Man, the smaller eyes and, and very skinny, not like a buff right. hero. He was just like a skinny dude. Kinda. Yeah, because if, if you. And read, awkward, kind of. Yeah, you know? and if you read Learn to Crawl Carefully, you notice panels from like earlier comics. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know. Yeah, definitely. There's a few. Yep, exactly. For sure, for sure. Yeah. Cool. That's really awesome. I mean, Hawkeye was like a different thing, too, because. That was sort of coming off that really, really successful run that like Mad Fraction. Did. Yeah, yeah, with David Aha. Yeah. So was that a challenge of in and of itself? Because people people really like that book. Oh yeah, yeah. I, mean, feel, I, read, I read that book too. Yeah, yeah. Did you feel like sort of sort of a challenge to have to reboot it? I mean, not really. Once again, it was like I think it was because Jeff Lemire, who I was working with on the the book, and he'd already pretty much pitched his idea on it right. and, and like he even said himself he was trepidatious when they approached him because it was a big book a popular book and the 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 thing that jeff did was his story was so far removed from like it, like we 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 complemented the fraction run but we didn't try to emulate it basically right. so and he had this great revisiting of the child uh, hawkeye's childhood so that lent itself to something very different than what the Fraction AHA run was. So that's why I didn't feel like we were and like I'm friends with David as well. So like, you know, he was like, give me my blade. He's like, do rocket, you know, do your thing. And I'd met Matt a few times as well. So I, I wouldn't say I was nervous at all. It was like, I think because our, our story was so different. Okay. I think I was fine. And like the reason and the, and because the script allowed me, like I approached them, I said, do you mind if I draw in two different styles? Because the script has a past and a present. Right. Right. So I did the past painterly and a little bit differently, try to mimic that kind of hazy Easy memory. memory yeah. yeah. And the, with the contemporary stuff, I just tried to riff off of what David had done in his run, not trying to really emulate it, but just trying to like, compliment like my, my version so if you're of his a reader that's yeah. read it you know that you're in exactly because that right? that's exactly it because i didn't want it to be so different because the the fraction aha run did something wonderful for marvel in the sense that it brought in readers who weren't traditional marvel superhero readers mm -hmm. right so it, gar it garnered this whole new readership for this character and i didn't want ours to be so different that we're going to lose that readership and jeff did a really nice uh, he was able to like capture the the dialogue that that Matt had put there and in, in, in the voice the voices in, in Kate and, and uh, uh, cadences. Yeah, exactly right. And Clint's cadences and relationships. He captured that again, so that familiarity would be, would be there to readers. So I wanted to bring that familiarity back in art as well. So that's why with the present day part of that storyline, I kept it very similar to the uh, Aha Run in the sense of like how he handled his line. And uh, the approach to coloring. I didn't want to try to emulate his panel because that's that's a whole thing that David does very well. And that was very much that aspect of that series. 
so I wanted to make that our own thing, but the art itself would kind of riff off what he'd done. And then the flashbacks would give a whole new different feeling as well. And then the later on, the flash forwards would be different as well kind of thing. Right. right? And the Hawkeye as a character presents a unique thing because he's like, he's the bow and arrow guy. He doesn't really have the power. He's always... Yeah, he's a regular Joe. Yeah. Secondary regular kind yeah. of guy, right? Yeah. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then Nova, it's it's completely different. It's like galactic and like yeah. you're, in, you're in space and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But it's not really a character that like people are all probably that familiar with beyond like Guardians of the Galaxy, I guess. Like yeah, the Nova Corps is not... It's not like the main main situation. No, sometimes. I mean like uh, I mean there is a big fan base for the Rich Rider Nova. That's a classic Nova that died back in I want to say two thousand eight or nine. Uh, please don't send me hate mail for not remembering <laughs> that. Um, but he died during uh, a big event. Yeah, and yeah. he was replaced the with the younger version. version. Yeah, the Annihilation Wave. So he was replaced by the younger version. Sam Alexander and that that guy that character had a hard time getting its own he has his own fans but the old Nova fans for the most part don't like the new Nova so it's like this divide of Nova fans right right but that character's been around since the, I think it's the 70s or early 80s at least so this was an interesting opportunity to bring back you're trying to bridge the gap yeah you're bridging we're bringing back one character and and trying to like bridge the gap with these two Nova characters and it's interesting because you don't see Spider-Man hanging out with his other versions all the time or having a team up team book with like two Spider-Mans is just you know they kind of go their separate they except might cross, for like recently yeah, yeah the they might cross Morales over here thing, and there yeah. or whatever you know what I mean but they don't, it's not like an ongoing thing where from yeah. issue one it's like hey it's Spider-Man and Spider-Man or right, Spider-Man right. and Spider-Gwen or whatever yeah totally so it was interesting in that regard and also just you know I love galactic stuff sci-fi is my first love so just being able to do something science fiction based. Yeah, is, going back to fine. the Buck Rogers. Yeah, Star Wars. exactly. Right. And I wanted to really bring a different aesthetic, like a little bit more. I'd gone a little bit more traditional with my panel layouts with learning to crawl and with Hawkeye. So I really wanted to go back to like what I did in John Carter and Tale of Sand and kind of just have more fun with the layouts because it's like we're, we're going big. We're going galactic, as you said. Yeah, right? And you're drawing like weird, like human planets. And yeah, stuff like exactly. That. You know, and, and the fact that I'm getting to co-write this book is also important because now I get to actually mold the story where I want to go. What is that like co-writing as an artist? Like how much influence do you actually have? Well, I mean, I go there, Jeff Loveness, who I'm working with on the book. Uh, he's a, he's a, he's done a few series in comics. His last, I guess, notable one for Marvel was uh, the Groot miniseries. Uh-huh. So, but he writes for, uh, during the day, he writes for the Kimmel show. So we, we met up and we not met up physically, but on the phone and, and chatted about our, our thoughts about Nova. And we kind of were on the same page for the most part. And uh, so we like agreed to kind of co-write. And I mean, I was pushing for co-writing credit or a full writing credit. I knew Marvel wouldn't give me a full writing credit because I'd never been tested in the mainstream market as a writer. You know what I mean? It's like you have to earn your chops everywhere you go, which is kind of annoying. Yeah. But I've also been lucky in the sense that I've worked with great writers. Every every series I've done for Marvel, it's either being Dan Slott or Jason yeah, Aaron, I mean, Jeff Lemire, Jeff Lemire. And so all I've, these, like huge. People. Yeah, I've worked with the top writers in the industry, yeah. and I get to learn every time I work with them. How do they tell a story? And you know what I mean. But I also have a very particular aesthetic of how I tell a story, and that can be seen in things like Butternut or Tale of Sand, uh, Cuckoo Burry, or uh, Rift's Machinations of Doom, which is a graphic novel I did for the gaming company way back when. So like I have my own voice so basically when i when when jeff and i what we'll do is like we have our plans for the characters some are his some are mine and we basically 
co-plot each issue. We go down like, here's, the, okay, here we're going to put this. We, we figure, first, we obviously, the first arc is like five issues, for example. So we figure out, we break it down roughly. We shift things around. We both put our ideas in. We, we mash it up, move it around. We then kind of edit each other. We remove things, change things up. I'll be like, sometimes I might be like, oh, that's too much. We have to remove some stuff. This issue's too full. Shift it. Sometimes it'll be like, oh, let's shift this sequence from here to here kind of thing. Once we get that breakdown of the issue, we then uh, basically break down the issue even further and go, all right, I'll write these nine pages with these character sequences and you write these 11 pages over here or whatever it might be. And then we'll match those two scripts together and then refine them even more. Yeah. Well, yeah, well, once again, edit each other over. And I might be like, oh, go in and brush up my Sam dialogue because he has a better handle, I feel, on Sam, the younger Nova, right. than so I do. So it's sort of like the best parts of the two scripts yeah. that you've come up with. I think so, yeah. Like, we're both basically coming in and, and splitting things 50-50, you know, and going in there and, like, trying to create the best story we can. And because we're two very different storytellers as well it creates an interesting dynamic, right? Yeah, yeah. Like he's a very verbal storyteller because he, he writes in comedy. So, but I'm a visual storyteller. That's how I th- see things first. Dialogue for me is second, though it's still important. Right. So like I'm always, so it's, we're, we're constantly mashing things up and turning things around and like he might add dialogue where I've left stuff, left maybe stuff out and then I'll cut some of his dialogue down where I think he might've put in too much kind of thing. And then, and also refining things and changing and things up. And since he works on Kimmel, he might need a little bit more coaching in terms of the comic medium i mean yeah i mean he's being he's been great letting me uh free i mean he's done a few other comics uh as well but i mean yeah like uh, because i tell stories a certain way i can i i can immediately look at a page and go yeah that's way too much for Mm -hmm. this this page will be so jammed with dialogue i might as well just draw stick figures in the corner (laughs) so maybe it's something he's written as one page i'll say let's expand this to two or three pages and we'll cut this part over here because that's not necessary or this is like fluff let's get rid of this piece so i think it actually makes for a very strong streamlined comic because traditionally the way comics are made now unfortunately is the writer writes the, the script hands it to the editor they review it go back and forth and then that script is handed to the artist and then it's the artist's job and then the writer isn't involved well, not really they come in at the lettering yeah. pass right yeah, later yeah, on yeah, yeah. and then and the artist is kind of left out mm-hmm. but because i'm a co-writer now I can now, I'm there from the beginning to the very end, from the the first moment we put the first word down to the last moment we put the last word balloon down. I go in there and go move that word balloon. Let's change this. Let's move this around. So I'm, a, I'm bringing that visual pacing that I think, see, most artists these days have to work around what the writer gives them. I'm actually able to go in there and go, let's fix this earlier on so I have more room to give more love to this sequence or this sequence will play out better if we break up the dialogue you have in two panels we'll put that in four panels yeah so it doesn't get annoying later on in the process when you're up against the goddamn yeah like you're like you you have to let panels breathe you have to let panels move and I think sometimes I mean there are some good writers there who understand things visually but there are also some who don't and then that's when you get these like really dialogue heavy laden pages where you you know you you can't draw efficiently or effectively kind of thing right or or tell this or give the story the the, the justice it's due kind of thing and ironically it's like it's like you have a te- you're working on basically a team up book and then you have a team up dynamic happening yeah, the yeah that's exactly it yeah, that's true right? yeah yeah it's crazy yeah. obviously it gives you an opportunity to draw like outlandish things because mm-hmm. it's galactic and yep. you can basically take it wherever you want not to like give anything away or spoil anything but where do you hope the book goes like what what's your goal you're working on it right now 
Uh, I mean, we have an arc set for Sam and, and Rich, and like you know, we'll reach a, 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 a certain boiling point around issue five, mm. uh, which will finish the first arc, and we're already issue three is coming out, I think, in a few weeks. Right. And uh, then we're then I'm probably going to take a break for two issues because my schedule is being a little bit heavy working on a. I'm also working on a graphic novel as well, so my schedule is being a bit heavy art wise. So I'm going to take a little breather from Nova on the art side, but still co-write. For two issues, and I think I'm trying to get uh, one of uh, one of the studio guys to draw. It depends on timing, but we're hoping to get him, and then I'll be back with issue uh, eight as artist, and then we'll work on the next arc. And that'll kind of, I think that second arc will actually bring in some really big game changes for both Novas. Nice. And uh, and then after that, we'll see. After nice. that, was nothing. After after that, the the sky's the limit. We'll see what happens after that. And you always say that like the script has to appeal to you. The story has to yeah. appeal to you. So what appealed to you about Nova, was it bridging the gap between these two Novas? Or? Well, I think the what appealed to me was uh, we're bringing back this legendary character, the, the Nova of Novas, basically, the Nova Prime. Uh, you know, he, he was the guy, and then he, he died. He disappeared. And you had this young kid Nova. So you have these very two different aspects of heroes. You have a hero that literally died saving the universe. Mm-hmm. And then you have this young punk of a kid who got the helmet from his dad yeah, and doesn't know what he's doing, right. right? And he's trying to be a hero. And you have like, and it's classic hero in every sense. And what they can bring to each other. You have this, you know, the classic Nova who can now school the younger Nova on what it's like to actually, this is how you become a hero. This is this is the stuff you have to do. You know, the, the, the where you pay your dues, the, the actions you take and stuff like that. And while Sam is a good natured kid, sometimes he's not the sharpest tool in the shed. And he's going out there and he has a power, you know. The, the Nova power under his uh, his belt kind of thing. And then, and then on the other aspect, you have like, you know, uh, Rich, who's been out of touch. He's been dead. He's coming back to life. Mm-hmm. The whole tapestry of the Marvel Universe has changed around him. And right. like, no one remembers who he is. He's, he literally saved their universe. And no one really is like, oh, that guy? Yeah, I think I heard of him. So he's like, oh, he's like a, a veteran coming back from the war. And people going, yeah, you did some stuff over there. What, uh, you know, so it's like, it's a lot to deal with emotionally. So then you have this enthusiasm of this younger character who now can feed into him and help him get back on his feet in believing in being a hero again. While Rich is like mentoring. Exactly. So it's almost like a dual mentorship in a way kind of thing. Right. Totally. Yeah. Cool. So I guess... I guess that's pretty much it. I mean, this graphic novel you're working on, yep. are, are you allowed to talk about it? Or Yeah, I think uh, I think PR will, by the time this airs, I think PR will start on, on that book. But okay. basically, I'm doing a, a modern-day adaptation of uh, Jane Eyre, the classic uh, gothic romance novel by the Bronte sisters. And I'm working with Aline Brosh McKenna, who is uh, best known for her uh, screen adaptation of The Devil Wears Prada, the film. And uh, and she's done numerous stuff, other other films, uh, Twenty Eight Dresses, I believe. Uh, there's that film with um, Harrison Ford. I'm blanking on the name of it right now. Uh, and she's also the showrunner on uh, Crazy Ex Girlfriend, the oh. TV series. She's quite prolific in the Hollywood uh, scriptwriting world, and she kind of fell in love with the comics medium. Had this pitch of an idea, and once again, this is where people people skills come in handy in this world. Uh, she was friends with Steven because she worked on the Henson lot, and we were on the Henson project, and he met her became friends with her. She was looking for an artist to collaborate with on this project. She was introduced to a few. Nothing really clicked. We ended up meeting over a phone call. Things clicked. I went out to LA, clicked even more. We hung out. And this project's been in development for quite a while. Like almost, I think we started on this 
pretty much within a year after uh, Tale of Sand. So, yeah. like, it's been in development a long time. Like, the art I only started on earlier this year, or sorry, last year now. But, um, so yeah, it's, it's set in New York. Um, it's a modern retelling of the, the classic story, basically. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, I get to do galactic superheroes on one side and gothic romance on the other. So, awesome. yeah, so it's a very different kind of story I'm telling in that one as well. So, it's, I just love changing up and telling different kinds of stories in, in comics. So. Cool. So, like, the last question I have, which is going to sort of encompass this whole interview. Yeah. Being a guy that's sort of experienced the two extremes in your career, where it's, like, struggling for 10 years, and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden it blows up, and, you know, you're you're where people want to be. Mm-hmm. What is your perspective on the whole arc of, of your career? Like, how do you feel about it, having this unique experience of seeing both sides? Well, I think, I mean... I struggled to get into comics. I never really, but I was lucky in my career. I always got to make a living being an artist. Right. And I think you, you just earn your chops and you get what's coming to you when the right when you're ready for it. Mm-hmm. And if I think about it now, like if I'd gotten those comic jobs early on when I was doing the sci-fi work, uh, I mean, I probably could have done them, but because I got to hone my skills in so many other ways, doing illustration work, graphic design work, I colored my own stuff, I inked my own stuff, I did everything. And then I came into comics and I had this entire skill set as a full-fledged artist. I got to bring it and I did my own lettering too on my web comics. So it's like every skill set that I needed for any aspect of comics, I could do. So like at first when I came in, they were like, oh, we have to hook you up with an inker. I'm like, no, no, I ink my own stuff. They're like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> and then I was like, can I do covers? And they're like, well, I don't know if you can do covers. And I'm like, I've done like covers for other books. Here you go. And they're like, oh, oh, you do covers. <laughs> and then I'm like, I'm going to color this too. And they're like, well, can you color? I'm like, here's my colors. Yeah. You know I mean? So it's like, you know what I mean? And then like, and just even with like word balloons on Nova, I'm like, yeah, let's move that word balloon over here. Cause it's, there's a bad tangent or this too tight on the lettering or whatever. I'm bringing all this experience into telling stories, how I want to tell them. So I think it was frustrating not being able to work in comics right off the, right off the bat, but I just scratched that itch by doing my own comics, web comics. Right. And you were prepared for the opportunity when it came. Yeah. I mean, anytime an opportunity came or a challenge came, even if, even if I wasn't ready for it, I took it anyways. Because right. at the end of the day, it's trial by fire. Mm-hmm. You either do it or you don't. So, and I, I did that many times in my career. Like people ask me to design like flash badges for like Internet Explorer or something. And I'd be like, they're like, can you do a, do you work in a flash? I'm like, yeah, sure. No problem. I hang up the phone. I'm like, call my other friend up. What's flash? Like, uh, what is this program I got to use? And I just learn flash and just do what I have to do. Right. Mm-hmm. All that, that foundation work helped me kind of get to where I am. And like, even with the Nova book, I redesigned the logo because I didn't like the old Nova logo. So I said here, uh, and they're like, well, we'll, we'll get in house. I'm like, no, I, I did, I've done graphic design. Here's the logo I want to do. Like I did a few passes. They chose one. So on and so forth. So, I mean... I love the coffee. I love the, like, here, I'm going to redesign your logo. Well, I think it's just like... <laughs> I think after a while, you just, maybe it's also age as well. Like, you just stop putting up with BS. Like, right. And you're like, I know what I can do. I know what I bring to the table. And I'm, trust me, early on, this is all confidence that's, that's built up over a 20-year career almost, right? right? Like, mm-hmm. And there are hiccups you get into where sometimes you're in unknown territory and you just got to pretend like you know shit. Uh, so, yeah, it's like now I'm old, like uh, with my experience and my knowledge base, and I'm just like, I know what I want to create and what the next steps are to do this. Right. And, you know, and if I want my career to keep going, I got to be more uh, engaged in it and be more aggressive and make sure the things 
come out the way I want them to come out, right? right. You know what I mean? Cool, man. That's awesome. Yeah. Like, I think it's a good lesson for our listeners, people who want to, like, get into comics. Like, this is... Yeah, and every road is different. Like, right. uh, C.B. Sabolsky always would quote a different... Marvel events, we do panels on breaking into comics. So he'd be like, the one line, he which he's stealing from somebody else who I can't remember who used it originally, but he would always say, breaking into comics is like uh, breaking out of prison. Once they find out how you did it, they seal off that way. And someone, the next person that breaks out is uh, going to do it a different way. Right. And it's kind of true with comics. Like everybody's story of breaking into comics is so different. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because everybody has their own path as an artist to take. So if you don't get it right away, don't stop drawing, just keep drawing or writing or whatever be that aspect you want to do. And when you're ready, when your skill set is ready enough, then you'll get that opportunity that'll come your way kind of thing. And that's why these conversations are so important, I feel. Yeah. So uh, I'll see you next time for the next one. Sounds good. On Speech Bubble. Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. We'll meet again. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.